Isn't this quite a view here today? My, uh, I want you to know that my dad made all that. Uh, it was Father's Day. Our Father God did that. It is Father's Day, and on this particular day, I want to speak on just a, a, a subject this morning that we're going to be talking in these next few weeks about the great transitions of the Bible. People are in transitions everywhere. There may be a transition in your life. Transitions of uh, children leaving to go to college. Or they've left home and uh, now they're back again taking residence in the house. <laughs> there may be a, a, a transition in your job, in your career. There may be a transition in your marriage. You're, you're going into a marriage. Or perhaps, unfortunately, maybe you're coming out of one. People go through transitions. And it's interesting that on Father's Day, that one of the greatest transitions took place. And that was from Moses to Joshua. Not that Moses was the father of Joshua, but that Moses was the father of a nation. Now I can't imagine in my life someone being any better to me than my mother. I can't imagine in my life someone being a better coach than my football coach in college. I can't imagine anyone being a better teacher in my life than my ninth grade algebra teacher. He was phenomenal. And I would imagine in your life, there may be someone in your life who you would say, they're irreplaceable. My daughter has two grandchildren, or two of our grandchildren, and there's a third one coming in November. And to say the least with three, it's a balancing act at the house with all of them being under the age of five. We all read, kind of, at least when I was in school, freshman English, we were required to read this novel called Cheaper by the Dozen. Steve Martin made a movie of this some years ago about having 12 kids. And we all applauded in the movie that it must have been a zoo to some degree, watching 12 kids try to exist under one household and one roof. But can you imagine trying to be the father of a nation? That's a formidable task. Such was the case of Moses. An incredibly talented child. But now it's coming to an end. A transition is about to take place. Joshua is on the rise. The mantle is being passed. The only problem is, Moses was phenomenal. We're not sure about this Joshua guy. Even when Jesus was here on this earth, he was teaching in the synagogues and in the temples. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees would say, but Moses said he was one of the most quoted persons in the synagogue and the temple. Today, the Israeli nation still thinks that the glory still shines on Moses' face. That's why it's very typical for a Jewish person to convert to Christianity because they think that the glory is still on Moses. And Moses didn't help the cause, according to 2 Corinthians, 
where he kept wearing a veil because every time that he would go into the presence of God, his face would light up to the point where the people couldn't even stand looking at him because the glory was so intense when he'd come down from the mountain. So he put a veil over his face. But St. Corinthians says that after the bed, after the the, the, the glory had started to fade, he kept the veil on. Kind of a little bit of manipulative there. Because he wanted Israel to think that the glory was still on his face. And I think sometimes we do that, don't we? We, we come to church on a Sunday and we put the veil on. The veil of false happiness. We're greeted by someone. How's it going? Wonderful, brother! It's great, isn't it? When inside we're thinking, man, I'm dying here. I'm dying here. Moses was a phenomenal leader. He was an incredible person, but we're not sure about this Joshua guy. Wayne felt he was irreplaceable. Billy Holiday, one of the great blues singers of all time, sang a song called Embraceable You. And in those are irreplaceable you. And he says, she says in the last, in those lyrics, she has the last line. Come to me, my irreplaceable you. Maybe you don't feel like that about someone, our spouse, our child, our friend. Maybe a pastor, a president, a church leader. Well, such was the case with Moses, the father of the nation of Israel. And they're about ready to have a new father. Moses was a leader. He was quite a guy. A quick biographical sketch would reveal that Moses was the the top of the line kind of guy. I mean, his resume was impressive. The most important figure in Judaism. Moses parted the Red Sea to free his people, brought them the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. His story appears early in the Bible and is filled with miracles and talks with God. At his birth, the Hebrews, descendants of Abraham and Jacob, Slaves in Egypt, King Pharaoh, who ordered newborn males killed, Moses' mother hides him in a papyrus basket. Among the Nile reeds, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, takes pity, and adopts him. Well, he flees as a young man, but God appears to him in a burning bush years later, sends him back with his brother Aaron to determine the Israel to determine Israel Israel's release. Plagues arrive, Hebrews escape, the Egyptian army drowns in the Red Sea. A wilderness sojourn follows in which God, through Moses, makes a covenant with the Hebrews and lays out the rites of worship and the laws of communal and personal behavior. At age 120, Moses dies by God's decree just before the people enter the land known in recent centuries as Palestine and Israel. With the help of his brother Aaron, Moses was able to hold together his ragtag band of ex-slaves for 40 years. Only a man with tremendous will, patience, compassion, humility, and great faith could have forged the bickering and scheming groups who had constantly challenged his wisdom and authority into a nation. Throughout the 40 years, Moses was in constant communication with God, the God of Israel. This God added to the Ten Commandments through Moses, giving a code of law regulating the social and religious lives of the people, the collection of instructions read to and confirmed by the people, called the Book of the Covenant. These were protected in a, spirit, a specially designed box called the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you saw a little bit of that in kind of a metaphor thing of Indiana Jones. All the specific details were spoken through Moses by God and the God of the Israelites. And Joshua continued the process. 
Under Moses' leadership, most of the land east of the Jordan was conquered and given to the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and to half of the tribe of Manash. Moses, however, was not permitted to lead the children of Israel into the Canaan, the promised land, because he had been disobedient to God during the period of the wandering in the desert. His regular meetings with God had fulfilled him in ways that even his fellow Israelites could detect. As I said earlier, his face glowed with the glory of God. At 120 years old, he died in the land of Moab and was buried opposite Beth Peor. Well, we all saw that movie, The Ten Commandments, or if we haven't, we probably will sometime in our life. Charlton Heston, strong, virile man at that age, portrayed Moses, tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, he was a palace man. He belonged in the palace. He was tough. He stood up to all. He was a risk-taker. Even at the age of 40, he had kind of left the palace, or as soon as he had 80, he left the palace. He was very creative. He had all these thousands of people in the desert with, with no bathrooms, and he still got them through. He was educated. The people of Israel trusted him. How many people could lead this many out of bondage to a promised land? I don't know of that many today. During this time as a leader, these particular milestones hailed his career. He took corrective measures in the economic policy of Egypt. He was a trusted man. He corrected oppression. Sometimes he did it this, his own way and took vengeance in his own hands. His oppression had ceased, or oppression had ceased in Egypt under his reign. He was truly respected in Egypt. He took down the law on the mount. He got them through the wilderness, but was not allowed to enter the promised land because he struck the rock twice instead of once. Now this new guy, Joshua, believe me, the jury is still out on this guy. But Israel's watching. This is our new father. This is dad. Moses had an intimate relationship with him. But... Joshua had been at the bottom of the hill when Moses was at the top giving the Ten Commandments. Joshua had watched him make the, the, the calf, the golden calf. He was a man of the world. But there they were, sinning against God and making a golden calf and bowing down to it. It's almost like saying, uh, yeah, I saw it, you know, I, I, didn't, I took marijuana, but I didn't inhale, you know. He was part of the process and part of the problem. But God came to Joshua in a powerful way, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. God said, I know you're going to be a father. And there are five things I give to fathers when they're about to lead. Five things that will make you a father that will win and prosper and lead. Whether you're leading a nation or you're leading a family of four, or how, whatever the number is, God said, I want to give you five things that will make you a terrific dad. And not only that, things that will help you and your family to lead you through transition after transition after transition. So let's begin this morning. In the back of your sermon notes, you'll see the passage from Joshua 1. He talks very intimately about this, and he says, in verse 8, he says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything worth in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? 
Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I'm going to need a little help up here. Uh, we just had one of those pages blown by that I didn't grab that one. I think it's just one. But uh, everything I know is in this sermon is on that page. <laughs> and if I don't get the page back, I'll have to speak by faith. Okay, there you go. Thanks, Mark. You're on it. False alarm. False alarm. Okay. The first thing he says to, to Joshua is, So I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. In the last part of verse 5 there. The first thing that he says he, goes, he gives all fathers is his presence. This is a whole new deal for me. This is great. I wish I had this earlier in the question. That would be somebody objecting to the choice. What a comforting thought to for God to say, I'll give you my presence. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the 13th chapter reiterates this for those of us who know Christ. He says his presence is continual. In 2 Chronicles 29, verses 20 through 36, King Hezekiah provides an excellent model of what it means about his presence. Because sometimes you may tramp through your days hoping God will announce that he's with you. Uh, you, you hope that somehow during that, during that day that bright lights will start, thunder will, thunder will crash, and everything else say, oh, and we look around and say, God's presence is here. But there are days where that doesn't happen. There are days where God's voice seems strangely silent, and we wonder whether or not he's actually here. What do you do then? What do you do then, Dad, when you're faced with a tough decision? And you're raising teenagers and questions have been asked that you're not sure that was in the parents' manual from the very beginning. What happens when there's a, a tough decision at work? There's a tough decision in the marriage between you and your wife. And God's voice seems strangely silent. How do you deal with it? Well, King Hezekiah did this with his people. In that 29th chapter of Second Chronicles, the people gather at their place of worship and they confess their sin, asking for God's forgiveness. They make music with instruments, they kneel down, they pray, they repeat the writings of the great spiritual leaders from the past. They bring their offerings, they sing joyful praises to God, they thank Him, and then they ask for His blessing. You know, I think it's really hard to worship God when He seems distant. But God invites you to worship anyway. Today you're here. You're sitting on that hard slab, but for those of you who are really intelligent, you brought a lawn chair. I'm not going to point you out, but you know who you are. But you're here, and you're here to worship. And sometimes, when you discipline yourself to worship, even when you don't feel like it, you become aware of something you didn't notice before. All of a sudden, when the radar wasn't up, and the signals weren't so clear, but you're, you're here, and you're, you're worshiping God, and you're giving it your best effort and discipline, all of a sudden, the radar goes up, the radar goes up, and the eyes get open, and you notice something that you didn't know before. And you notice that God was there all the time. He never left. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's with us 100%. Dad, he promises to be present with you wherever you are. 
And sometimes, Dad, it takes you as the leader sometimes to say, no, as for me and my house, we'll be in worship, even though some days we don't feel like it. And the Saturday night party went a little bit long. And we're all tuckered out. We're going to make the effort to go. Why? Because when we're in that church and when we're corporately worshiping together, and we understand that worship is a corporate event, it is when God meets us with, with his people. That's why Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. Why would he say that? Because worship is an event. It is the day when God meets with his people. And he does things in a worship service. He doesn't do it anyplace else. Yes, you can take that trail right there. You can have a phenomenal walk. No doubt about it. Will you meet God? Yes, you will. But I'll tell you, there's something else he does in a worship service when he's gathering his people together. And Dad, if you're putting your family together that way, you're opening their eyes, you're giving them an opportunity to do it for God to do something really special in their life. The second thing he promises is his providence. You will lead these people, it says in verse 6, to inherit the land, I swore to their forefathers to give them. When God says he will do something, he makes it makes little difference who the leader is. God doesn't say, oh, I see you guys down at Dillon Community. Yeah, you've been a faithful church, but now your pastor is gone. So I guess I'll withdraw my promise, and I'm not going to bless you anymore, or at least as much as I did. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. In fact, he makes you more aware in transitions of his personal providence. Because sometimes we were leaning a little too heavy on the pastor. Leaning a little too heavy on the staff. To make it happen and make my day better. God says, no, I want want to do this with you alone. But God's purposes are unstoppable, my friend. And the first thing we need to understand about God's rule over the universe is that none of his purposes can fail. He says in Isaiah chapter 46, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It is absolutely certain, the Bible says, that God will achieve everything he wants in creation. Nothing that God wants accomplished will ever be left unfulfilled. That is what God means when he says he will accomplish all his good pleasure. Why? Because his purpose will be established. Thus it also follows that nothing can ever happen which would ultimately keep God from fulfilling everything he wants. Now some people, to be sure, say that God does not have any unstoppable purposes in regards to human history because that would entail that humans are not in control of history. Well, there's a thought. Scripture, however, poses no such limitation on God. In fact, in the very next verse, God applies his purpose to the realm of human activity and he says in Isaiah 46, 11, I even call birds of prey from the east. I even call the man of my purpose from a far country. God can do whatever he wants. Furthermore, it would be of almost no meaning for God to say that none of his purposes could be thwarted or can be thwarted if his purposes had nothing to do with one of the most important areas of the universe, human history and human decisions. The impossibility of God's purposes failing is significant and revealed in the Bible precisely because it applies to our very lives 
Many other verses confirm that God's purposes in regards to human history cannot fail. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He even puts the rulers in positions. Even in our own country, no one gets elected president just by happenstance. God ordains rulers. That's why he says we should pray for our people. Sometimes we think that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. Yes, we do need to do some work and we need to get out because faith without works is dead. We understand that. But I want you to understand the sovereignty of God this morning. It's powerful and dead. You can count on it. You can count on His providence. He's not going to lift you up to let you fall down. He's there for you, men. I make no bones about it. I'm a champion of men. I love men in the right way. I want them to take the leadership in their home. I want them to be the man that God intended them to be. Sometimes I get concerned with that in these days. But I believe God is calling men to himself. And I believe men I can say without a, a, with a quiver in my voice, God will provide for you because his providence is true. Many other verses confirm that God's purposes in regards to human history cannot fail. It even says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. In Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God has not given control of history over humans. Instead, the verse is clear that God takes actions to frustrate human plans whenever he desires if it's not going his way. Which means whenever they are not in line with his plans, since God's counsel must stand forever. The only problem I think sometimes we have is that God is more patient. Life much more patient than we are. Sometimes he lets years go by before he acts. He lets the full depth of a sin unfold before he comes in and intervenes. He doesn't always act that way. He did many times. I think of in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit because they had been so taken back by what Barnabas did by giving the best of his land in Crete. So they thought, wow, did you see all the praise that Barnabas got? Why don't we give some land? Well, let's not give our best land. Let's give that back 40, that back acre stuff where it's dusty and dirty. But we'll just tell everybody that we gave it all. Peter confronts them and said, why did you lie to God? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And in that instant, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead independently of each other. Because their testimonies were independent of each other. Well, if God did that, can you imagine what would happen during the offering? When we take the offering? People will be listening. God does tarry. He gives time. And in that time while he tarries, things happen. Atrocities happen. But in the end, it's all because he will frustrate all human plans that will not lead to the fulfillment of his plans. And even in the end, it says that his enemies will become his footstool. Third thing that he does for you men and all fathers, he gives you his promise. He's got your back. In verse 7 it says, Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. He says, Don't change the plan. Stay on course. What does God do for us? Then, what does he do for us, fathers? What does he give us? 
What does he give us so that we'll be the kind of the Father that we need? Well, let me give you seven here real quickly. He has promised to supply every need we have. The Bible says, By God shall supply all your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ. Number two, God has promised that his grace is sufficient for us in 2 Corinthians 12. In fact, he made provision for our salvation by his grace through faith. Number three, God has promised that his children will not be overtaken with temptation. There's always a way of escape. The promise is recorded in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Jude even wrote, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present your faultless, you faultless before his presence with his, in, uh, his glory with exceeding joy. Darius, the king of the Medes, said to Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee, you. In Daniel 6.16, he did deliver Daniel from the den of lions. And I know there are sometimes, Dad, you feel like you're in the den. God said, I want to tell you, you got my promise too. I've got you back. I'll equip you from within. Yes, I'll give you every supply that you need. I'll give you grace that's sufficient. I'll pray, I'll give, make sure that you're not overtaken with temptation. Number four, he promised to give you that victory over death. Wow. Peter even is quoted in Acts 2.32 and it says, This Jesus has raised us up, whereof we are all witnesses. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Later on in that same passage, he adds, yes, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even victory over death, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that, man. Number five, God promised that all things will work together for good to those who love him serve him faithfully in Romans 8, 28. It may be difficult for us to see that and understand from time to time and just how that's accomplished, but God has promised it, and he will deliver. Number six, God has promised that those who believe in Jesus and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins will be saved. I don't know about this morning, maybe some of you have wandered in this morning, you're wondering, well, I, I go to church. Maybe you've never met Christ in a personal way. Maybe you've never had the joy of experiencing and saying, whoa, I didn't realize that, you know, now that I think about it, if Jesus really died for my sin, and I'm a sinner, and God cannot allow sin into his heaven, oh, yeah, now I do see the need. I do need a Savior. Jesus promises to be that for you. That can be done by a simple prayer. You don't need a preacher. You don't need to be in church. You can do this at your bedside when you get home or back in your living room when you get back. You can simply bow your head and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I understand for the first time in my life that I'm estranged from you. And religious acts do not make me a Christian any more than standing in a garage would make me a car. But I come to you today and I understand that I and come all short before you. But I thank you that Jesus Christ has done it for me. And I humbly now accept him as my Savior and turn over the control of, of my life to him. And that's the beginning, then, of relationship that matters. Number seven, God has promised his people, and he's promised dads, he's promised fathers eternal life. But let me now wrap it up with the final two points. The last two things that he provides for fathers in this list of P's is also his provision. 
In verse 8 it says, do not let this, this book of the law depart from your mouth. It's not a condition, but rather the provision of how God works. It's tied to the word successful. It doesn't mean prosperity here. Nowhere in Scripture does God rejoice because you're driving a, a Lexus. Or because you're driving a Volkswagen, Chevrolet, BMW. Whether you live in a $5, man, $5 million mansion or you live in a, in a small trailer. That's not what God rejoices in. I can remember when I was the Bible study leader on the PGA Tour for about seven years. I can remember Larry Nelson coming to me one day and he says, Does God even care about golf? I said, uh, in my wisdom at 32 years of age, no. But he does care about golfers. And he, care, he doesn't care about an eagle or a birdie or an albatross or a par or a double bogey, but he does care about your attitude when you get about it. He doesn't care whether or not you live in a $5 million mansion or you live in a shack, but he does care about your attitude and your gratefulness and your dependency upon him. Wherever you're stationed in life, he is always grateful. He is always looking at how you view his provision for you. Dad is given to you. Yes, then let me wrap it up by saying that he's also given us, finally, his protection. In verse 9 it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Once again we see his presence as protection against all adversity. In fact, in verses 10 and 11 he says, Tell everybody that we're going to be in the land in three days. How that must have been something for Israel to go into the promised land that had been promised. Moses had gone to the door. Joshua brings him in. With Joshua, the battles did not diminish. They increased. There was no leader who came on the scene after him that was good until Samuel's reign, hundreds of years later. The life of Joshua depicts the daily battles of every Christian. This morning I started out by saying you may be in a transition. Israel was in a transition. They were going from Father Moses to Father Joshua in a sense. But in that transition, he taught them about their presence, his providence, his promise, his provision, and his protection. He couldn't have done that unless there was a transition. We've lost our pastor at Dillon. I'm stepping in to be the interim pastor. But I believe with all my heart, he's going to bring you a Joshua. And this new guy is going to take you places you've never been. I only hope after he's on board I can come back up and take a peek with you. Transitions are cool. I remember the story when Joshua was about ready to go to the promised land. You remember that 40 years before Moses had sent out 12 spies and they came back and they voted 10 to 2 not to go in. Only Joshua and who else? Caleb voted no. Or voted yes, we can do it. I love Caleb. The older guy. Like me. We can do it. I like that. But they got voted down. 
They didn't go in. Next time, Joshua only sent in two spies. You know when they bumped into it in, uh, when they were in there? They bumped into Rahab, the harlot, prostitute. She was a whore. She greets them. This story really gets kind of cool here. you got to hang in with me on this one. And she says to them, we have been sitting here terrified. When we heard how God, your God, dried up the Red Sea, our nation shook with fear. And you could have come in. Now, if you're doing the math, you got to rewind the tape a little bit because these two spies come back to the camp. Everybody's sitting around the campfire. All of Israel is there. They're waiting for the report from the two spies. And they tell about their encounter with Rahab. And she says, guys, they said, we could have walked in here 40 years ago and taken the land. See, God, God provided the whole way. All we had to do was trust him and walk in. Now, if I'd been a teenager, and maybe I would be like about 54 now, and I'm standing at the campfire, I might have raised my hand and said, excuse me, could I just kind of summarize what I just heard? Yeah. And I'd be looking at my dad. I'd be looking at my mom. According to what I just heard was that I spent my teenage years in the desert, Wandering around eating something called manna? I missed that. I missed my prom. I didn't even go to the last football game in Jerusalem High. I was out here in this desert because you guys were a bunch of cowards and God had set the program up and you could have walked in and had the promised land. Did I get that right? Well, that's then, and this is now. And your kids may be looking at you and I, Dad, and said, Dad, have we gone where God wants us to go, Dad? Because my Bible says that if He is providing the way, He'll make sure that it happens. Dad, I want you to know that God has spoken to you. You got my support. I'm going with you, Dad. Man, happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. But everyone in this room is at a father. And I recognize that on Father's Day, it's not always easy for everyone on Father's Day. Some of you do not have memories that are really great on Father's Day. But I do know this, that where your, heaven, where your earthly fathers failed, your heavenly Father will not. And I do know this, for those of you who are fathers, lead your family then. Lead during this time, because these principles that were even given to us in this great transition between Moses and Joshua are still true for every father today. And that God speaks, we listen. Johnny came home from church on Sunday morning Missionary Sam had been there. He'd given quite a message, and little seven-year-old Johnny's heart was stirred. He was taken by Missionary Sam. He went home in the afternoon, and he went upstairs, and he got his piggy bank, the seven-year-old kid. He brought it down, put it on the kitchen table, and opened it up and spilled out 37 pennies on the table. 
looking at his mom and said, Mom, would you take this, this money? Because missionary Sam needs all of it. Well, the mother was just touched. Wow. This kid gets it at seven. So that night they went to bed, and just before they went to bed, Johnny came up to his mother and he said, Mom, don't forget to take that money down to the church tomorrow. It's missionary Sam needs it. She said, Johnny, I got it. I got you. Well, the next morning, Johnny got up, ready to go to school. Said to his mother, Well, I'm not. Got to catch the bus. Don't forget to take that money to the missionary. She said, Johnny, I got it. He runs out the door, grabs his hobby duty lunch bag, and I'll follow him. Out to the bus. Five minutes later, he comes running back in. She said, what are you doing back here? You're going to miss your bus. He said, I just wanted to make sure you would take that money to the mission. She said, Johnny, that's the source time you told me. What are you so concerned about? Listen, here's from the lips of the son. He says, cousin, I don't want to have that Jesus come in the second time to do it. How many times does God have to talk to you When I became the chaplain for the Senate of Colorado, when I had the chance to leave the Bible study on the PGA Tour, when I was the chaplain for the Los Angeles Dodgers, when I was the chaplain speaker and the Bible study leader for the San Francisco 49ers, and when I was the chaplain for the Dentist Rockets, I can tell you this. God just had to whisper. But there are days in my life. God tells me to do something. It's pretty tough. Sometimes he has to shout. When I need to apologize to my children and apologize for being a jerk to my wife and apologize for not leading and hearing God's voice and not having the guts to follow, sometimes he has to shout and say, Gene, you gotta make it right. Those are transitions we live in every day of our lives. I'm convinced of this. Even though Dylan Community Church is in a transition right now, he's about ready to be a Joshua to you. And I'm excited to be along for the ride. Are you?